The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. Let me quickly remind you about the, the Paris Agreement. I think all of you know there were climate talks in Paris last year uh, that resulted in, if not a breakthrough, about as hopeful uh, an outcome as, as we could have hoped for. We had uh, representatives from 195 nations as well as the EU, so pretty much the, the whole world uh, represented, and they came up with uh, a pledge to reduce um, the rise in temperatures um, to two degrees Celsius or less. Um, well, you know, I mean, that sounds good, and, it, and unfortunately there's no policing mechanism. It's a real back down from the kinds of hopes we had in the late 1990s with the Kyoto Protocol. And it's really, it's really, I have to say, it's every nation for itself because the Paris talks were based on individual promises by individual governments to uh, to do certain things. Um, of course, the U.S. and China are, are the key countries. Um, uh, and what I'm going to do today is actually sketch out a, a, a very optimistic scenario. I happen to believe it, and I'll tell you where I think you know it, it could go wrong. I'll be honest about it, but. China is the key. It's really the key. And uh, it's, it's responsible for roughly 30% of uh, global greenhouse gas emissions, or carbon dioxide mostly. And if China gets it right, we have a chance of living within this two-degree limit. If China doesn't, I mean, all bets are off. Because in fact, when you add up all the pledges from this supposedly successful conference, it comes out to uh, an estimated increase of 2.7 degrees in, in global warming. So, I mean, you know, this is supposed to be a success, and yet we're nowhere near the, really the two degrees. And in fact, scientists think we should limit it to one and a half degrees. Um, we're already at 0.85, so we've already burned up a lot of the carbon budget. So really, China is the key factor. And uh, if I'd been giving this talk uh, two years ago, I, I well, I probably wouldn't have, because I would have been too pessimistic. Um, but uh, I think that um, uh, you know Paris is a start, but China is really the key. Um, I'm not sure how well you can see this, but this this red line here that's up on the top is China. You can see that you know in 1990 China was emitting a, really exactly the same as Russia, a bit more than Japan and India, way less than the, the European Union is the blue and uh, the U.S. is the green. And these are gigatons per year. I mean, it's just, anyway, it's a lot of carbon. Um, uh, and you see roughly around the chi time China joined the WTO, so the early 2000s, its, its greenhouse gas emissions just accelerated. And so now China is roughly um, emitting as much as the U.S. and the EU put together. So, you know, it's a lot. Now, I don't know how you can see this, but this is Beijing on uh, last March. <laughs> Late March, as it was. As it turns out. <laughs> yeah, so actually, if you, you probably can't see it in the back, but if you get closer, you do see there's some buildings there. Um, now, the previous slide really talked about the global impact of China and, and why China, it's important in terms of greenhouse gas emissions that we see China starting to bend that curve down. And if we have a a hope, as I said, of limiting the, the increase in global warming to two degrees or so, then we've got to see China limit its greenhouse gas emissions. But, and, I, and this is a great chance for China to play an international role. And I think it's, it's a great chance for Sino-U.S. relations. It's probably one of the only bright spots really right now in, in, in Sino-U.S. relations to work together on the environment. So I think it's a, it's a wonderful chance for China to, 
take a global global leadership role in the environment. But I think this is really the key to what's happening. This is why I'm a major reason I'm optimistic. I don't think that the, the party, the government, can indefinitely go on with dozens or even over a hundred days on this order of magnitude in a capital in the capital city. And I mean, you all know the story. And uh, it's just politically um, not supportable. And I think many of you are familiar with the kind of pushback that uh, you know we saw from ordinary citizens. Uh, I think most of you will be familiar with Chai Jing's documentary that came out just over a year ago called Under the Dome. Um, we've seen various uh, figures, but most people say uh, 200 million downloads in China in the 10 days or two weeks that that uh, documentary was available. We've, we've actually, some of our research suggests 300 million people downloaded it. And it was, again, as I, I think most of you know, it's a Syrian documentary looking at the impact of, of air pollution on Chai Jing, a former CCTV anchor, on, on her uh, young child. And... Uh, then lo and looking at the whole the whole structure, which allowed uh, this this sort of environmental damage to continue, um, most Chinese don't know, but uh, most scientists uh, agree that about 1.6 million premature deaths occur every year in China as a result of outdoor air pollution. It's not only coal; it's not only energy related, but that, as you'll see later, that's the overwhelming uh, you know culprit. So I think. Um, I think that, you know, we'd all agree the Chinese government has done a, a, a remarkable job of lifting 600 million or more people out of poverty, of, uh, of uh, economic development on a, a, sort of a speed and a scale that the world has, has never seen. But um, that the old, the strategy that until a couple of years ago they thought they could pursue, uh, which was get dirty, get rich, get clean, that, you know, worked for us, worked for Japan, worked for a lot of people, that just it's not going to work in China. Just the, the scale is too big. So th this combination of global pressure to limit carbon emissions and the domestic pressure that, that too many days like this uh, together um, have means that, you know, the, the government really has to change, I think. So I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, clean energy, but then I'm going to talk about coal, and then I'm going to talk a lot more about clean energy at the end. So this is from uh, Bloomberg New Energy Finance, which I think does the, the best data on um, uh, clean tech spending. Um, last year, China spent a little over $110 billion U.S. dollars on uh, clean tech, broadly speaking. The U.S. and the EU together spent about $113 billion, maybe it was $117 billion. So basically, China... Um, spent as much as the U.S. and the EU put together. And the, e the EU spending actually peaked a few years ago. The U.S. is quite erratic. But you can see, look back to 2004, maybe $5 billion. Go from $5 billion to $112 billion, uh, in the space of a little more than a decade. And with this kind of consistent growth, there's a bit of a flattening in 2012-2013. But, you know, pretty much it's year-on-year -year growth. And uh, I think that Again, anybody who thinks China is like not serious about about uh, environmental policy just just has to look at these numbers. And again, these are not Chinese numbers; these are Bloomberg New Energy Finance numbers. You can, you know, you can probably quibble with some of their definitions, but you know, these are international standard numbers, and uh, there's nobody that comes remotely close. A couple of years ago, the U.S. and uh, and China were sort of spending the same amount, but pretty much every year since I think 2008, China spent more than any other country. Um, I mentioned this. Uh, before, but uh, as a as a reminder, um, 
the, uh, it was, I guess, 15 or so months ago, November uh, 2014, um, during um, President Obama's state visit to China, uh, an agreement that surprised a lot of people. Maybe Steve knew about it ahead of time, but most of us didn't. Um, the uh, the Sino-U.S. climate agreement uh, was the first time that um, a Chinese leader promised to, uh, to limit global emissions. Um, at that time, uh, President Xi promised that uh, Chinese... Um, Greenhouse gas emissions would peak around 2030, quote-unquote, around 2030. Um, that was seen as a, a huge breakthrough. Um, I, I know, uh, well, quite a senior government official in Hong Kong who works on these issues, who was, uh, shortly before that, I'd been hearing from the Chinese that they were going to commit to 2030, and this, this official was really happy to hear that because the thinking was China might, first of all, they might never commit, and when they do, we were looking at, a peak of, you know, perhaps well into the 2030s, in which case, you know, there was a chance we were going to be quite fried as a planet. And so, again, I just want to underscore how quickly things have changed in, in the last 15 or so months. This 2030 uh, promise was huge. In fact, as I'm going to talk about later, I, I think that uh, China is going to peak substantially earlier than that. Um, also, some just some key takeaways from that, that agreement. Um, uh, China, President Xi promised that, uh, reiterated an earlier commitment that China would uh, cut its carbon dioxide emissions per unit of GDP by about 60 or 65 percent using 2005 as a base. Another way of looking at that is China would be roughly three times as efficient, three times as, three times less energy intensity. And China is not a very uh, energy efficient country. It uses about three times as much, coincidentally, about three times as much energy per unit of GDP compared to the U.S. Um, it uh, uses a lot of electricity. It uses a lot of coal. It's you know it's got a lot of heavy industry, so maybe that's not surprising. But um, uh, China also promised uh, in that agreement that it would double the share of non-fossil fuels, and that by 2030, that that, that would make up about 20 percent of the energy. It would make up 20 percent of the energy mix. In fact, um, uh, they're you know they're well on their way to hitting their target of 15 percent by 2020. I mean, they've, as we'll see from some later slides, China's made really rapid progress. Um, we're looking, and I have some slides that demonstrate this, but we're looking at, at roughly um, 800 to 1,000 gigawatts of new non-fossil fuel capacity. So it's wind, it's solar, it's also hydropower and nuclear. Um, when you think of, uh, I mean, gigawatts, this abstract number, but think of Indian Point nuclear power plant. I think by memory it's got two units. Each of them are almost one gigawatt. So you think of 800 to 1,000, it's like 800 to 1,000 um nuclear reactors, so four or 500 units the size of, of the Indian Point complex. So, you know, this is an enormous amount of power. It's, it's more than any other country has, by a long shot has for its total electricity base, and this is just renewable power. This is just renewable power in the next 15 years. So it's, I have some slides that I try to give us a bit of scale um, later on because it's just it's hard to get a sense of how big China's ambitions are. Um, we go on. So, the, I, I want to talk a bit more about why coal is such a problem, and, and then I'll talk about solar and wind and, and how they're going to they're going to fill the gap. So, um, roughly about seventy percent of China's uh, electricity is generated from coal. It used to be eighty percent not too many years ago. The coal share is falling pretty quickly. Um, about two thirds, sixty five percent or so of China's total energy is generated from from coal. Uh, China burns a little more than half of all the coal in the world. So, again, China's 
China's the big kid on the block, and if we can get China to burn less coal, then it, it has a global impact. So that's, that's the global impact. Um, uh, coal is responsible for, I think, about 90% of the sulfur dioxide emissions, about 70% of the uh, nitrous oxide emissions, which are the, the particulates, the stuff that makes the, the air look um, so dirty in Beijing. So you've got the greenhouse gas side, and you've got the particulate and the environmental pollution side. And again, coal is the key. And uh, if we can replace that coal, then um, China's a long way towards... Um, what about the impact of burning more coal efficiently? That some it, of these it, plants it, it are, definitely pretty, are pretty old, yeah. and that newer, and they're, you know, I've been, I've seen yeah. coal plants, I mean, I, you know, electric plants coal-fired that have scrubbers and the scrubbers aren't turned on. Isn't there a lot of low-hanging fruit there, that there could is. reduce their emissions without the dislocation of... Uh, I, look, you make, a, you make a good point. I don't know that we're going to... Well, let, let me. I mean, do we that know what that ones. number is? Are well, yeah, the old plants were were burning roughly about thirty percent efficient. The new ones are very rough terms, about forty percent efficient. So huge difference in terms of how much electricity you get out. The scrubbers, of course, make them less efficient. Um, as a sideline, I should say that China, in the space of well less than a decade, put on more scrubbers than everybody else in the rest of the world had done in history. Um, and at first, they didn't turn them on, and then. And even though they gave subsidies and the companies happily took the subsidies, um, then they did um, a couple of things, a uh, couple or three things. Uh, they started real-time monitoring, so you could be in Beijing and be monitoring the, the plant wherever. Uh, they started uh, sending out uh, environmental SWAT teams, not from the localities, but from somewhere else like Beijing without prior notice. And they started actually firing people. And it turns out that when somebody is faced with a loss of a job that they decided might be a good idea to actually do what they were supposed to do. And so those three things have meant that, uh, and there's some great work that's been done on, on this for anybody who's interested, some very detailed work by a professor at Chinese U, uh, actually a mainland guy, um, Xu Yan, and it's there's dramatic, uh, dramatic reduction for many of these plants because they're actually using the scrubbers now. But the, the scrubbers make them less efficient, though, unfortunately. But, um, yeah, sure, there is a lot of low-hanging fruit, but ultimately... Um, and, and China's not going off of coal, but if it went, you know, down another 10%, it would make a huge difference. Um, so, um, so, and as we see coal use is falling, um, the numbers are a little lumpy. I think they fell in the middle of the chart. You see it falls really sharply. That's 2008. That's the, um, that's the global downturn. Bounces back a little bit as the economy back, bounces back, and then the last two years, in fact, coal use has fallen in China, and the numbers, these numbers up close, when you are, are really um, erratic, and uh, it's difficult. Uh, you don't want to read too much into one one or two years, but the the overall trend is it's, it's down, and it seems that that um, coal generation really did fall last year. And it's a combination of a slower economy, of course, but a lot of it is because the renewables are coming on, and there's more energy efficiency and. Uh, you know, whether or not it really fell sort of 3 or 4% last year, I don't know, because China has a way of retroactively saying that it used more coal than, than it initially said. And um, so it makes I, – I don't want to declare a victory and say that it's going to fall Where's forever. this data from? Uh, this is – what does it say? It says in here. But um, I think I, – I th it's Chinese – there are Chinese official statistics, though. It's from – sorry, this is from the US EIA and the China National Bureau of Statistics. 
Um, it was the EIA last year that sort of re-scrubbed some of the Chinese data and found out that they'd been using 16% more coal than we thought the decade before. And so, um, you know, it's hard to it's hard to say how many tons they, they burned in a particular year, but I think we can see which way the trend is going. We were having double-digit increases for the first uh, sort of five years of the, of the de last decade, and now we're having single-digit and probably single-digit declines. Um, so I want to talk uh, a bit about solar and wind and give you the other piece of the puzzle. Um, China has uh, now installed 43 gigawatts of solar power. So again, you think that's a, you know sort of equivalent to 43 nuclear reactors. It's, it's more than anybody else. Germany is the only country that comes close. For the last 10 plus years, Germany has had a very aggressive series of policies to, um, to install solar power, and it has all of 39 gigs. Uh, last year alone, China installed 15 gigawatts of, of solar power. I mean, it's it's just unbelievable how fast they're doing this. And if you go back and you look at say 2009, 2010, China had almost no solar power. They were selling. They were the biggest solar manufacturer in the world of panels, but they were selling it all to Germany, Spain, Italy, in particular uh, European countries that had uh, feed-in tariff subsidies, basically for for solar, and of course selling a lot to the U.S. It was. Partly, the ironically, the trade disputes uh, and the, the tariff and anti-dumping uh, duties that were put on in July 2013 by the U.S. and over a, a period of years uh, in Europe, which actually put a floor under solar prices and uh, prompted the Chinese to start using this huge capacity they had at home. And so you've seen that Chinese solar go from almost nothing to the largest in the world in just a, a very short period of time. And uh, again, I think you know that you know most of the top solar companies are, are Chinese. Um, they're you know many of them are New York listed. Some of them are delisting now. They're not always the most profitable companies in the world. We can talk about the whole corporate structure. I'm not sure these are great companies to invest in, but they've they've really changed the world because they've done what China does best in manufacturing. They've used their manufacturing excellence, their engineering know-how. Um, the guy uh, who, start, who was the head of the largest uh, solar company, SunTech, until it went bankrupt, was a PhD solar guy from Australia. I mean, these are these are really world class people who are doing this in many cases. And I don't think that the fact that the companies go bankrupt, that they have financial difficulties, should obscure the fact that these are really good manufacturers who are improving efficiency, improving manufacturing, and driving down costs. And I've just spent a lot of the last two days at a Bloomberg New Energy Finance conference. Um, over at the Grand Hyatt, um, John Kerry was there this morning, Mike Bloomberg. And, you know, the, the whole story is China's driving down these prices. I mean, that's not the whole story, but that's what is underlying the fact that solar and wind are uh, cost competitive with the cheapest form of power, which is usually coal, largely as a result of the Chinese. So they have done the world an enormous uh, service. The story is much the same in wind. Uh, China doesn't, unlike solar, China doesn't export a lot of its wind turbines. And uh, it's companies like uh, Siemens, GE, Vestas, uh, which still have very strong position, positions in the international market. Um, partly because these are big ticket items. None of us are going to put a wind turbine on our, our roof. We might put a solar panel there. These are utilities who are buying these. They want them to last for 20 or 25 years. And the Chinese don't yet have that kind of track record. Um, Goldwind, which is now the world's largest wind turbine maker, has had some limited success in exports, but it's a, it's a really different story from, um, from solar uh, in, the, in being a much more domestically focused market. Uh, 
But uh, 15 years ago, China imported uh, or used foreign technology for almost all of its wind turbines. Now it's, it's overwhelmingly domestic, and seven or eight of the top ten uh, wind turbine manufacturers are Chinese. It's the same story in, in solar. Uh, but in China, they're selling it to China, and you can see 145 gigawatts of wind capacity, so three or four times what, uh, you know, about three times what we've seen in solar enormous amount. The U.S. is number two, and it has only about half, about 74 gigawatts of wind capacity. Interestingly, the U.S. is still producing more electricity for sale from wind than China is. And again, I think this is, you know, points up the strengths and the weaknesses of the Chinese model. Um, you Very good at production, very good at installing things, not always running, using these assets uh, as efficiently. I think they'll get it right, but for now, um, something we talked about in the Q&A as well, too many turbines are either not hooked up to the grid, or when they are, the power is not actually used. Um, so, you know, it's, it's an issue. So, I want to finish with a couple. This is a somewhat busy slide, so I have to apologize a little bit. But I'm trying to give a global sense of how big the green tech is in China. So, where over on the left is this is China's uh, generating capacity today. So, about 1,200 gigawatts of, of electrical power. Um, uh, the green part is is the clean tech part, and that's hydro is very big, and uh, you know solar and wind are most of the rest of it. Nuclear is a very small part, and even with this dramatic expansion in, in nuclear, will only go from about three percent to five or six percent. So, um, nuclear probably part of the answer in China, but it's actually it, it pales in comparison to to other um, non fossil fuel um, sources. The next uh, bar is the U.S. today. So you can see China, despite having an economy that's only about two-thirds the size of the U.S., has significantly more generating capacity. Um, as I said, it, it just uses a lot more energy. It's less energy efficient. Uh, the U.S., the clean tech part, it's big, but it's nowhere. It's not even half of what China is. Um, I just put the other bars in for comparison because you've got the number three and number four largest economies in the world, Japan and Germany. And you know, they're only around 200 gigawatts, 250 in the case of Japan. So, again, you see the importance of the U.S. and China in the global energy picture. And on the last one, I have uh, I, China. So here's China today, and then here's the 800 to 1,200 additional. So if they if they, if they hit the lower end of what they want to do, this is where they are with clean tech alone by 2030. So, again, compare this to Germany and Japan. If they hit the upper end, they're here just with clean tech. I mean... And most of this is, is, you know, there's a bit of nuclear, there's some hydro, but this is mostly wind and solar. So um, I, I, I try to illustrate, you know, just how enormous uh, China's ambitions are and, and I think how seriously we should, we should take their promises. So, again, this is the picture today, but, you know, we have days like this and I think we're going to have a lot more days like this <laughs> in China. So I'll stop there and... Uh, now, you haven't dealt with with, you know, mobile sources of pollution, so transportation, yeah. you know. It, it's an issue, but it's, uh, I mean, in terms, globally, transportation is like 20% or something, buildings are 40%. So, I mean, I haven't of, looked at... Of you. carbon emissions. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's important and... Because in terms of that picture... A lot know, of dirty trucks, yeah. It, it's a lot of dirty yeah. trucks, it's a lot of cars, it's, it's an auto but, industry but, that's... But it's mostly in China, well, China is interesting because... It's overwhelmingly heavy industry and heavy industry in electricity in China. And despite the number of vehicles, you mean for for, for carbon air, emissions for, or no, for, for air pollution. pollution? For air pollution as well. I don't know. Somebody, I, yeah, I, 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 I think there's a, the the most recent numbers is now the within Beijing. So when you see those days, 
mobile causes are greater than oh, industrial okay. I hadn't causes. Seen, I think it's 31% or something. Okay. 31% is which? Mobile. So it's only 31. Well, yeah. only. That's still, still very significant, but yeah. 31. I thought it had actually had moved much higher now yeah, with these the traffic number. jams that are... And the low-grade refining, refining yeah. standards. Right. And again, for anybody who saw Chai Jing's uh, documentary, Under the Dome, I mean, she talked about, yeah, the refining issues and just the... I mean, this gets into the politics of fuel and of energy in, in China um, and the ability to enforce standards as well, because there are vehicle standards. And... You know, we face this on a, on a much smaller um, scale in Hong Kong, but we're basically paying the buses and the trucks to upgrade and, uh, right. you know, to go away, basically. But we have the money to do that. It's, a, it's definitely an issue. Greenpeace, for the people who are interested, Greenpeace uh, Beijing does has been doing a lot of studies, trying to look at the weather, trying to look at the sources, and, um, um, yeah, we should probably look at that more carefully. But I had not picked up vehicles as, as a major... 31 percent. 31%. 31%. That's, yeah, that's, that's, that's a big number. And what... Why is the question? In other words, is it this? Are they dealing with kind of carbon emissions because dealing with the pollution effectively allows you to deal with carbon emissions, or have they made a decision to be that they feel so threatened by by um, climate change, you know, cities along the coasts and other things that they have got to take an action? What's driving? Yeah, you know, that's a, it's a great question. I, it's a combination of all of the above. I think. I think that the immediate threat of people, you know, Beijing citizens and, and others being so unhappy about this. And again, let's just state the obvious. Most people only have one child. And, you know, when you've got stories like a 10-year-old in, I don't know where she was, Nanjing or somewhere, has got lung cancer, you know, from breathing, whether that's really from breathing the air or not, I don't know. But, you know, those sorts of things circulate. And it's your only child and everybody's living in fear, then I think that really focuses the mind. Now, of course, China has a lot of great engineers. Its leadership is, you know, almost exemplifies a technocratic engineering sort of leadership. And they understand that climate, the erratic, the more erratic climate, more droughts, more floods, the I think is more of an issue actually than the coastal rise is, is you know, a huge threat to them. But I think that's the more long-term thinking policy people as opposed to, I think, what's driving is the more immediate threat of air pollution. And why do you think no debate in China on the causes of climate change? As opposed to the United States, where it's a oh. political issue. In I, China, basically, I'd say it's because accepted. Chinese believe in science more than Americans. <laughs> no, I say that. I mean, it's very discouraging to me. You know, I don't know. Am I wrong? I mean, yeah. I mean, it's just like the overwhelming. I mean, this has been theorized about since the 1890s. I mean, you know, there's like so little debate about it scientifically, and. I don't know, you know. I mean, maybe if China were as open as America would be, that we'd have politicians who would be denying it. But it seems that people trust their leaders, and the leaders listen to scientists, and, you know, the scientists, you know, tell them what the consensus is. It's highly complimentary of the Chinese government. The Zhu would be happy to hear you. <laughs> so the, the, the organization department of the Chinese Communist Party would be very happy to... Uh, it's probably the only thing I ever said to him. But, um, uh, did that. Uh, You know, the, the numbers that you're showing us are incredibly impressive and dramatic. They've just ramped up so dramatically. And yet the hardest stuff seems in some ways yet to come. Um, you know, you talked about, you talked about um, you know, the issue of curtailment, for example, just wasted wind energy because the system isn't set up for, uh, you know, the state-owned enterprises, of course, are not motivated to 
get the renewable positive grid and stuff. Do you see, um, you know, do you, do you expect that there's going to be a lot of political pushback? And, you know, how do you, what, you know, the whole question of SOA reform, the whole reform of the power yeah. structure, what do you think about that? Yeah, well, since I was limited to 20 minutes, I decided to be optimistic, and I took out the slide about the challenges. But um, I think you, you really hit the nail on the head in terms of the challenges. You hit most of them. I mean, even in, you know, again, a lot of the talk at the, the Bloomberg New Energy Finance Conference was about the difficulty of integrating renewables in. And so I don't care what country you're in, it's, it's difficult. I mean, it's difficult, it really is difficult from a technical and an engineering and a grid management um, um, perspective. Uh, and in China, as you said, this, this curtailment issue is huge. So, for example, I know somebody that's is, uh, on the board of um, major solar, top 10 solar manufacturer, and they have some downstream plants, which um, they've built, but they'd like to spin off and, you know, this what's called a yield co. It's sort of like a REIT where investors can just buy the plant. They're buying a utility plant. The cash flows through, and it's a very predictable cash flow. But, well, you know, they haven't really gotten their feet in tariff. They haven't gotten paid by the government. So, you know, uh, and it's not – and by the way, Sun Edison in the States had a similar strategy, and they, you know, are in financial trouble. So – you know, they're just, if you actually read, you know, it's like you read the prospectuses and the financials of so many of these wind and solar companies. It's not unique to renewables, but in China, you know, the whole triangular debt problem seems to have really come to this area. And so they're not getting paid. Um, you know, there's the curtailment issue. This They keep pledging that this is going to be priority given to dispatch of green power, and it hasn't been happening. And uh, it's happening more. Um, the, you know, the feed-in tariffs aren't being paid, the subsidies aren't being paid. So then you have cash flow issues. Um, so, yeah, I mean, these, these are quite real. Um, and I didn't talk at all about something that I think is both very promising, but uh, since you brought it up, it's also a huge challenge, which is China's promised the world's mo the largest uh, and most comprehensive cap-and-trade program starting next year. And I, th I think you probably know better than me, Dinda. I think it's 16 different industries. It's nationwide. It basically means if, let's say, you're a cement factory, that uh, you have the right to emit a certain amount that will probably decline over time. And you can, uh, if you're going to emit more than that, you have to buy them from somebody else who's emitting less. <coughs> so it forces system-wide, uh, it forces a, a decline in emissions. But, um, you know, there, <laughs> it's so much bigger than anything we've ever seen before. Uh, it requires transparency, it requires data, you know, it requires lack of bureaucratic discretion. Um, you know, and the U.S., um, by the way, wasn't able to pass and has tried a couple of times to pass that and hasn't been able to. And where it's worked in the U.S. has only been on a, on a kind of regional basis and in a fairly limited way. So on the one hand, I'm really hopeful. I'm impressed that the Chinese are doing that. But it would be so much simpler to put a, cap, a, a price on carbon, right? So right. why take the most complicated bureaucratic solution to the problem? Any sense of whether they will put a price on carbon? There was about five, yeah. six years ago there was discussions when you would go and meet with them, they would say, oh, well, we're thinking about just putting a price on carbon countrywide, and then that kind of fell away. I know. I, I just haven't been hearing that. Yeah. And, um, I mean, I'm not up in Beijing every week or anything, but it seems that the focus is doing is in cap-and-trade is going to take so much energy. And, um, you know, it just seems like it would be so much simpler. But, for example, MIT Tsinghua came out with a really great study uh, uh, in October 2014, just before the... Um, U.S.-China uh, climate agreement, and that's, you know, they all their scenarios, and they were modeling the, the, the car, uh, carbon price in there. So, I mean, people are still talking about it. I just don't get the sense it's anywhere on the political agenda. 
but I don't know. Anybody else? Yeah, sorry. Uh, I'm, my name is Larry Bridwell, and I teach uh, international business at Pace University. Uh, I want to come back a little bit to the uh, Paris conference, because by, on a per capita basis, the worst polluter in the world is the United States. And uh, so in terms of this agreement by 2030, there seems to be all this emphasis on China. And by the way, that pollution from China, a lot of it is making goods that they export to us. So we're contributing to the pollution, that, at least in terms of the, the goods that we're purchasing. So um, I, my question is, why isn't there even more emphasis on the United States reducing its pollution by putting on a carbon tax? And how does that affect the worldwide picture, and including uh, China in terms of the U.S. being the biggest per capita polluter in the world? Hmm. Well, I don't live in the U.S., and I, don't, I really don't know. I mean, uh, I, I, I would say that... Um, on a per capita basis, China has increased very dramatically in the last decade, or really since they got into WTO, and it's it's at European per capita levels. It depends which part of Europe and which part of China. Um, I, I can't really defend the U.S. Uh, for reasons that you suggested. Um, there have been some studies done, and I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but it seems that less of this, the actual carbon emissions are as a result of exports, certainly are exports to the U.S., than than we would have imagined. I mean, I think it's like single-digit percentage or maybe around 10%, but I, I, I'm not, really don't have that number, but it was less than I thought it might have been. I mean, so much of the greenhouse gas emission in China is due to, to its heavy industry to things like cement. I mean, again, they poured more than half the world's cement last year, and that wasn't for export to the U.S. That was for building roads and buildings and other things in China. Um, uh, again, you can look at pretty much every industry, glass, steel, aluminum, and, uh, you know, those industries were built for domestic, mostly for domestic consumption. Uh, as the economy slows, they're exporting more, but uh, I think it's, you know, it's heavy industry and it's electricity that's really the problem in China. Um, and the good news is they've got a lot of extra capacity and they've got a lot of low-hanging fruit and they have a lot of factories that can either be um, retired or upgraded. And in fact, um, there's... Uh, very hopeful um, well, pilot project. I think I think it's called the Ten Thousand Enterprises Plan. In fact, in, in, it, in, it um, comprises about, if I remember correctly, about seventeen thousand different companies, and they're being given all sort of both carrots and sticks, but mostly carrots. And and uh, I think it in includes both technical assistance as well as financial subsidies. And again, it's being done in a very Chinese way, where local, you know, government is working with local. Uh, uh, companies uh, apparently I'm well actually again I was told by this guy Xu Yen that I mentioned before did the work on scrubbers at Chinese U that the results have been extraordinary and they have been getting such savings that many companies are now going into the energy saving business and helping other companies uh, save energy because the paybacks are so high in China so quick in China um, I mean I think it's a matter of months rather than than years um, but uh, even with a very low cost of energy, artificially low cost of energy and of electricity in China, there again is so much low hanging fruit that uh, companies are getting a really quick payback. So, I don't know. That's that. I think is the focus. The U.S. I don't know. Other people would be much better placed than me to uh, talk about the U.S. You have a question, Becca? I'm Bill Einbruster, a retired journalist. Um, so many of the uh, civil disturbances in China over the past couple of decades, I believe, 
resulted from uh, agreements between corrupt officials and business leaders to install uh, very polluting factories. Is that type of uh, thing still going on? Uh, absolutely, and I think that that's, uh, uh, you know, to, to your question, Steve, about what's driving this. Um, I think the kind of citizen, uh, I don't know, outrage, unhappiness, um, commotion that we see happen when there are things like toxic spills in water and uh, other things is something that just, you know, officials lose their, their jobs now, or, or at least temporarily, as a result of... Uh, you know, presiding over a situation where there's some kind of a protest against a factory, and I think people are much more aware of their of their rights and of their well, certainly of, of the ability to protest against the situation. So I think I think the nightmare is that this somehow is a spark that sets off a, a prairie fire, and that somehow it coalesces into something bigger than what it's been so far, which is tens of thousands or a hundred thousand sort of mass disturbances a year. As you say, many of them are related to property issues and many are related to, to pollution and environmental issues and often, you know, the two of them together. So, you know, how much, I mean, I leave it to others who know much more about the internal politics to know how much of Xi Jinping's anti-corruption drive and design, desire to sort of clean things up uh, is directly related to that or if that's just sort of, you know, an ancillary benefit. I, it's, it's hard for me to speculate, but this is definitely a real concern. How much of a commitment was the Paris Agreement in a lot of ways. Because to kind of commit to say, well, 2020 will have peaked, there's now evidence that they have peaked already. I'm sorry, I said, I would, I said I'd get to two, yeah, 2015 yeah. may have been the time of, of yeah. peak, or yeah. 2014 was the time of peak emissions. So to kind of commit 15 years from now, well, we're going we're gonna to have done it anyhow. So yeah. if I were Donald Trump, I'd be saying, you see, you made a deal that was no real deal, that we kind of committed to stuff, but there was nothing that, that the Chinese did. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, uh, interesting point. I think uh, Todd Stern, the, I guess, former U.S. climate negotiator with China, has, has made that point. Um, 2030 seemed like a huge deal. And that's why I was trying to give some sense of how much things have changed in the last 16 months. When they announced that, I was like, wow, you know, because it looked like things were going up. And as it turns out, Coal use, apparently, if we'll see, fell in 2014, fell in 2015. I think that we haven't necessarily seen the peak of coal use, but that doesn't also translate into peak emissions, and it takes, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not a scientist, but apparently coal use needs to, will probably peak about five years before total emissions peak. Um, and I'm sorry, I didn't, I had taken this slide out as well, too, that um, it looks to some people like Nick Stern, who did the, the Stern Report, a uh, very famous report about a decade ago on, on climate change, that China can peak by 2025. Um, uh, Zhang Kejun, who is probably the top guy in China who's modeling this, and by the way, from what I hear, his model is, I mean, fantastic and world-class, very granular. It's not one of these top-down theoretical things. It's really looking at what almost individual factories are doing. He's talking about it peaking by 2025, which means probably early 2020. No, total emissions. So, you know, again, to, to your point, I think, I think what Todd Stern was saying is like, hey, yeah, they set themselves way too easy to target. And we do know that Chinese have a way of, of they might be stretch targets, but they pick targets that they can they can meet. And they may, it just may be that they were much closer to a flex point than we knew, but that even they knew. And that the 
if things like this 10,000 Enterprises program, which is still sort of experimental, is is getting the kind of, of benefits that, that it was Xu Yan who told me about, about the success that he's hearing. He's gone out and indivi- interviewed individual companies. If it's getting that kind of success and we can replicate and scale that, then, yeah, it may happen a lot earlier. And, um, you know, that's got to be good news. I mean, it's got to be good news for everybody. I don't, I don't know why you, Donald Trump or anybody else would be unhappy about that. But well, except I can't you, didn't nego- you didn't negotiate a tougher deal. That's his point, that you basically, things that were going to happen anyhow, you then announced as a major commitment. I think that's the, you know, it's, uh, that's it's, the it's still a major commitment, and uh, uh, I think it's, I think China's, then you could say, well, you know, China But without the commitment kicking in, if this were, you know, what we're hearing is that, you know, certain folks are, are asserting that emissions peaked last year. No. Coal. I don't think people are saying total emissions peaked, though. I mean, globally, the IEA said that total emissions peaked well, the last two years they've been flat, and that's the only time absent an economic downturn, a recession, or worse, that that's happened since they started keeping records in the 1970s. Um, but I, correct me if I'm wrong, I, I didn't know anybody was really declaring victory on total No, they're not. They're, in fact, they're saying it's likely that this is based upon a, a, you know, a rapid slowing of the heavy industry side of the Chinese economy that is currently contracting, and that's why you've had this. I don't know, Ernie, is it emissions or coal that's peaked? In, in that coal, coal emissions, coal emissions. Yeah, yeah. And some of it's because they turned the equipment on that wasn't on. The, the finite volume of coal is still growing. The percentage is yeah. going down. The year-on-year percentage, but the, the, the right, so coal is use is continuing to grow. They've turned on the equipment, so coal emissions are have peaked. Is that? Maybe we can get back to that. Uh, There's a question in the back. Hey, Mark. Uh, Thanks for the talk. Uh, Maybe you covered this earlier. I'm Johnny Huang with the CV Star. Uh, At one point, I helped on selling a clean coal company to China, helped with transfer technology. I think from an old perspective, uh, many residents know that there's a lot of uh, U.S. demand from business in China to transfer that. So I'm wondering, in comments on, are there any uh, existing so effective policy or program or NGOs that are helping that 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 kind of uh, effort? If not, you know what we can do in that in that uh, respect. Yeah, that's I think it's a really good point. Um, uh, and I don't know, Dinda Elliott from Paulson Institute or some other people may have a more granular view than I do. Um, I, I think that there is a lot of cooperation at the national level. I mean, particularly Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory has been working for a long time, uh, not only with China, I mean, also has a big program with India. But I mean, I think there are quite close relations at the national level. Um, and again, Steve, you might know more about this, but I mean, Berkeley does, Lawrence Berkeley Lab does fantastic energy efficiency work uh, for the U.S. and for the world. But they have a, a very deep program in, in China. They have uh, people who are born in China who work there, a lot of ethnic Chinese who work there, I mean, a lot of Chinese speakers. And just from what I've seen on their website, it looks like they're very actively engaged. Um, and I think maybe Penny Pritzker, or maybe even at a ministerial level, uh, in, in, you know, Guangdong, I mean, quite a lot going on. Um, I'm not as familiar with the private sector. I, I think they're, I'm glad, delighted to hear that you and others are, are trying to sell that technology. That's supposed to be one of the big... Uh, breakthroughs in Paris is there's supposed to be a hundred billion dollar a year climate fund from the developed world to help developing countries. I'm not quite sure where China fits into. Sorry, what? 
Yeah, well, that's the other thing. Number one, where's the money? Number two, where does China fit in? And technology transfer is supposed to be part of that. Um, I think this is actually based in Songdo, uh, South Korea, right outside of Seoul, this, this UN uh, fund. But, yeah, I mean, the money is always being pledged, and it's not really – hasn't really come through. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Um, Introduce yourself. Uh, my name is John Hartman. I'm a concerned citizen and uh, quite saddened to hear your uh, statistic of 1.6 million uh, deaths per year in China. And so I have to ask you uh, about your source um, and if there's any uh, similar statistics available about other countries. Uh, I've seen it. I Let me – we'll exchange name cards or something. I'll send it to you because it, it, it's, it's – uh, there was a, uh, an estimate of I think about 1.2 million when I was working on the book and it was from one of the top journal I can't remember if it was, it was Lancet or you know New England Journal of Medicine or Nature but I mean a peer-reviewed journal and then this 1.6 million figure came out uh, subsequently from a actually a Berkeley based uh, source journal and I'm happy to send it to you um, I've seen it uh, you know I've I read the article and I've seen the, that uh, sourced um, since that came out about a year ago. Um, there is, I don't know if there's directly comparable data. I mean, WHO puts uh, puts out data. Um, and, you know, it's obviously an estimate. It's looking at premature mortality. Uh, but I think in, in, you know, as an order of magnitude, it's a pretty accepted uh, figure. So is it 1 million? Is it 2 million? Is it 1.61 million? You know, I, I don't know. But, I mean... You know, when you look at it over a decade, you're talking 16 million, 10 million. I mean, you're talking a lot of people. And that's separate from the 1 million a year that die from smoking, that die prematurely. Yeah, from this smoking. is outdoor air pollution specifically. So it could include. Uh, I've seen that 1 million figure yeah. from smoking, which seems low. But yeah. So it could, but it could include, I mean, to your point, it could include, you know, it could include vehicles, it could include coal fired power plants, it could include, you know, cement plants. I mean, it's it's not specifically coal, but coal is, you know, again, as I keep saying, coal is the, the big piece of the puzzle. But, but we can exchange, uh, you know, I'll send you the source. So. Chris. Uh, thank you. My name is Chris Mark with APCO Worldwide. Um, just a comment on the commercial side. There's a lot of activity, including the U.S.-China Clean Energy Partnerships which has existed for many years in Beijing and has been very active across a range of policy issues. And on the commercialization uh, of uh, new technology and required policy changes, China Green Tech Initiative has covered much of the same ground. It's now part of Paulson. Right. There are a lot of people looking for the opportunities commercially. Uh, the, most of that work shows that the lowest hanging fruit is retrofitting buildings and get the fastest payoff from, uh, from doing that. But um, anyway, um, I, I wanted to ask you a question about renewables because if you move, if you increase substantially the uh, share of renewables in the uh, energy picture, it raises questions about storage and transmission and the quality of the network uh, <clears throat> and where you're going to get your base load from. Because it's Sun doesn't shine all the time, wind doesn't blow all the time, so there's got to be a base load coming from something in an, in an environment where total electricity consumption is going to go up, uh, even though industrial consumption will decline. So 
what, what's your view of, of what the Chinese are thinking about those uh, issues currently? Yeah, I mean, first of all, great, great comment and a really good question. Um, just uh, to follow up a little on the building side, um, buildings uh, account for about 30 to 40 percent, um, well, globally, we usually say 40 percent, China might be a little less, of total uh, electricity use. And you get, as you say, you get by far the biggest bang for the buck. It's cheaper to build a greener building than to build a coal-fired power plant and the wires that go to it. But for a lot of reasons, uh, countries have been very slow to uh, to take this opportunity. Um, it's almost like they're leaving money on the ground. Um, and China has uh, actually, it's talked about, has an amazing figure. I didn't understand that it's cheaper to build. If you, if you spend a little bit more money <laughs> when you're building your building, a little better glass, a little better insulation, and you obviate the need to build uh, an additional coal-fired power plant. I see. So it's the cheaper. energy that you save, save is, in the yeah. building yeah. would alleviate. Okay. Yeah, it's called megawatts, basically. Okay. You know, you're still you've got a beautiful place with nice windows and nice light, and you're comfortable, right? But you're not using as much uh, energy. And um, China has uh, actually really aggressive uh, targets for uh, new green builds. So I think by let's see if I can find this. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I find this really hard to believe, but it, uh, the current five-year plans uh, targets 50% of new building by 2020 should be so-called green buildings. Um, but that's easy. You just change the building code. What you really need to do is, <laughs> is you need to what? You need to retrofit existing buildings, and if you go to any co-op or condo board in, in Manhattan or New York City, I guarantee you they're thinking about those issues yeah. and calculating the return on, on uh, that kind of investment. Right. I think that, that that's held back in China because of the ownership structure, but eventually that will happen. Too. Yeah, I mean, 10 years ago, people were not, uh, or, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, people were not thinking about that in New York, and I think it's an example of the, you know, strong policy along with NGOs and people's self-interest, and it was, it, it made sense from a financial standpoint. I'm not so sure that just changing the building codes will solve things, because First of all, people don't always adhere to building codes in China. And second, building things is one part, but actually running them efficiently and in a comfortable way that the users are going to enjoy the buildings is something that China has unfortunately really lagged behind on. And so, I mean, if they got to 50% of new builds being whatever green means, there's a lot of different ways, a lot of different shades of green by 2020, I think it would be huge, especially given the pace of construction in China and the fact that... Um, you know, buildings, if, if they're built and run well, they last 30 to 50 years. In China, they've been lasting 15 or 20, which is both good and bad. It means that they'll renew the building stock uh, more quickly. Um, the base load issue, um, I think there's a lot of work being done on this. Uh, Germany is an interesting example because they have so much renewable now, and so you end up in the, the, the classic solution is, is gas-fired power plants. You can turn on and off very quickly, which you can't do with coal. Um, I mean, as I said, nuclear is not going to be a huge uh, part, but it's going to be, let's say, 6% of the base load. I think we're going to have a lot better storage. I mean, people like BYD, which Warren Buffett, uh, his uh, company, bought 10% of, is uh, it's known as an electric car maker, but in fact, its its founder, Wang Chen Fu, got his start making batteries for consumer appliances, and he's really a storage guy. So he is among many, many people in China who's looking for the holy grail, which is storage. Because if you can do solar and wind with good storage, then you've solved so much of that problem. But, you know, of course you'll still need base load. By the way, going back to that point we were discussing, my sources, I know it's 
often subject to question is the New York Times. Um, but it, it says that some researchers examining energy data are asking whether emissions of carbon dioxide, not, not mm-hmm. coal use, have peaked a decade earlier than expected. You heard it here first. Yeah. Well, you heard it from Ed Wong. So, uh, that's, but that's he, really he even yeah. talks about how coal use has go, gone down uh, year on year. Is that true, Ernie? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, so what? So it actually. So year on year, it's actually yeah. lower. It's not that the rate of growth has decreased, but actually, we have yeah. less coal. It was one point something percent decline in 2014, and three point something percent last year. But. Sure. They have a way of, as I said, retroactively raising the what you know, what what the estimates yeah. were by quite a bit. So let's not declare a victory quite yet. Yeah, I think we can see the trend, but yeah. Thank you. Uh, my name is Jessica. I work here at the National Committee. I'm a former officer. Um, so earlier you were talking about wind capacity, and we talked about how China has 145 gigawatt capacity, the U.S. has slightly less than half of that, but is generating twice as much. And I actually... No, 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 no. I said that China was about, not quite twice as much as the U.S. The U.S. is generating just a little bit more, I think. Generating just a little bit more. Okay. Is that the lack of, I guess, having so much but not generating enough from that capacity, is that a grid issue? Is I'm guessing, because I read an article earlier today... It was a Bloomberg article, and it was called China Wants to Power the World, and it was talking about this idea of a global grid. But in that um, the article mentioned that China state grid companies spent like $65 billion last year on upgrading um, to, I guess, high-voltage lines. I don't know the technical terms, but where is that deficit, I guess, coming from? Is it companies, you know, is it top-down issue, or is it more of a companies or individuals not wanting, you know, the resistance to kind of tapping yeah. into yeah, um, there there are several facets to what you said. Um, let's get back to this grid uh, issue later. But uh, China, some of it is just the wind. Like some years the wind blows more, and some years the wind blows less. Sometimes uh, the turbines are sited in better places. Sometimes they're sited in worse places. It's not like you just put it up anywhere and it works. And uh, so I, uh, my memory, without looking, uh, having looked at this really recently, is is that. There were some bad, I think last year, maybe the year before, were sort of bad wind years in a number of places. So that's one issue. But the main issue is that the turbines, have, it's easier to put up a turbine than to, to build out the grid. And the grid has lagged behind uh, the turbine build out. And then they, they keep, they are catching up. And I mean, they are spending tens of billions of dollars a year to upgrade their grid to build big cross net, you know, east west uh, grids, ultra high voltage. Um, and yeah, it's on the order of you know sixty-five billion. I had I haven't seen that Bloomberg piece, but um, that sounds you know like it's in the order. I mean, they're talking about um, I mean on the order of you know hundreds of billions of dollars to build this out. And now there's this new thing to power the world, as you say, which I can't remember is fifty trillion dollars, fifty trillion RMB. I don't know, but anyway, it's not going to happen. But we can talk. For, I, yeah, it's, I think it's um, you know there. are there are a lot of political issues, you know, with, with grids. So let's just talk about China domestically. They're building the grid out. They're spending these tens of billions of dollars a year to build the grid out, to build these ultra-high voltage 
uh, lines to build what you know people who are much smarter than me technically say is is you know going to be the world's most sophisticated smartest grid, and that'll be fantastic, um, and that will solve a lot of the technical problems, um, and that those are roadblocks right now. But um, the shortage of wind and the shortage of the, of the grid is only part of the equation. And the other part is just that people have traditionally dispatched coal power ahead of, of wind power. I mean, wind power, again, you get into the technicalities of it. You know, you've got to balance the load. You know, coal, it's like you turn it on, you know how much coal, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong or anything, but, you know, it's a lot easier to manage a coal <coughs> plant than, like, a bunch of different turbines, you know, with, you know, producing different amounts of electricity. And also, you know, that's just how they've done it. And so, you know, all these new wind turbines coming on and, you know, multiplicity of sources, very complicated. It's just, like, easier to do the coal thing. And then the fact that, you know, the subsidies are slow uh, and the feed-in tariffs, you know, they're just slow to pay them, I think doesn't really encourage people either. So, you know, it's just a, it's a mixture of, of all these factors. But uh, the Global Wind Energy Council is, is probably the best source. The IEA, the International Energy Agency, writes on this some. But the Global Wind Energy Council, <coughs> this issue of so-called curtailment, uh, is, you know, it's an issue everywhere, but uh, it is it is sort of the issue they write about every time they do their annual report when they write about China. And um, it's, you know, it's really difficult. And I guess over the next 10 years or so, they're going to get it right, but it's not anything's going to be solved immediately. Yeah, God, I don't know. One question more right in the yeah. second, yeah. first there, and then Jan. Thank you very much. I'm Sato Ascala from NYU. Um, I was wondering if I could ask you about um, how you see the impact of reforestation efforts. And I was wondering, particularly interested in the importance that the Chinese government is attaching to reforestation efforts. And would it be, could it be a, an important part of the solution, or um, would it be the solution should, um, need to, needs to come from the, um, from the coal production yeah. sites or um, buildings and stuff? Yes. Well, since you teach environmental history at Columbia and I guess at NYU, you can probably give a sense of perspective to my answer, which is that, um, I mean, China is, has made reforestation a, a big uh, policy priority, and the target is 4.5 billion cubic meters of reforestation between 2005 and 2030. I saw this number that um, my nice researchers got, and I have no idea what that really means in the real world. So... Um, Maybe you can tell us a little bit about it. I mean, it sounds like a big number to me. I do know that just from a, an environmental standpoint, that after those very bad floods in the late 1990s, that Zhu Rongji, I, I, I hear the order came from him, ordered an end to some of the most destructive timber practices. So that's more on the environmental and the landslide uh, side. It's not on the sort of, um, I guess, carbon region, you know, the, having the forests uh, uh, absorb carbon side. But I don't know, can you give us a sense of the scale and how important it is? I mean, obviously they care and they're making a big uh, a big um, push in this area. <laughs> well, I don't have any um, inside information, but, um, but my impression from my readings and discussion is that um, the efforts are not coordinated um, very efficiently. Um, it is true that uh, people are planting a lot of trees but, um, but um, some people argue that uh, trees could be planted more efficiently right. so that um, they could be more, um, they could be an important part of the solution. Yeah, yeah. And I guess to, I guess, sort of amplify that, it, my impression is um, 
say, the Los Plateau, where you're seeing a lot of deforestation, a lot of, you know, sandstorms coming and, and uh, affecting Beijing, that they, you know, they just haven't really made any progress on that. And there's been a lot of work that people like John Liu, who's a, a Chinese-American filmmaker and now uh, environmental expert who's been working, and others have been working on these specific projects. But it's surprising to me they haven't had more success, given China's ability to do things on a large scale. So, um I don't know. I guess the good news is that you know they recognize it's a real issue, but maybe it's not as effective as, as they think it, as it could be. One last question, Jan. It's actually two last questions. <laughs> <laughs> only get one. Really, <laughs> um, only get one. <laughs> <laughs> yes or no answer. <laughs> so, first one is those of us who went to China in the seventies, eighties, and nineties biggest impression you came back with was this massive bicycles constantly in the street. Now you don't see any bicycles. In fact, we have delegations coming here who want to take them on bike rides, and half of them say, we don't know how to ride a bike, which seems a little ironic. <laughs> uh, one could argue that, I don't know how much of the air pollution comes from vehicle transmissions, but certainly not only have vehicle transitions, but also crowding and decreased efficiency because you can't get any place. So is there any thought at all, or would it be political suicide for people to try to reverse the trend that they've done? That's a good question. I have, I've heard very, I mean, electric bicycles are now really, really popular. I mean, massive industry. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I share your thought. I just don't know why, but it doesn't seem that people want to be back on their bicycles. Okay. <laughs> Unless they're electric, in which case they might make a slight exception. They can't afford a car yet. In the book... In the Greening of Asia book, one of the kind of the model companies is Hong Kong's MTRC. Mm-hmm. You know, that really has been, has worked towards sustainability. Well, that's actually what leads to the next question, which is about Hong Kong. So, a lot of pollution this stays in Hong Kong, which I assume Hong Kong folks might want to blame totally on China uh, and not remember that it's a lot of their factories that they put in Guangzhou uh, that's producing this pollution. But does the increased pollution, and uh, does that tie into the feeling of many folks in Hong Kong just part of their antipathy mm. these days and growing yeah. antipathy towards the mainland? As but someone who lives there... Do yeah, no, it's a really sense? interesting question. You should get Steve Barkley from Hong Kong Economic and Trade Office to answer <laughs> after me. But... Um, uh, I, it actually seems, from the studies we've done, or I've seen, I've read, um, that the worst air roadside pollution in Hong Kong is from the buses and the trucks. And uh, again, Steve may be able to amplify this, but there's a very aggressive cleanup program where basically the government is going to heavily subsidize the bus and the truck companies to, to cl- really clean up their act. And that's going to deal with a lot of the roadside pollution. Um, yes, we do get some from the factories, but um, uh, that has... In terms of the particulates at roadside, it doesn't seem to be the major source. And uh, one does hear a few complaints about um, mainlanders in Hong Kong these days, but I haven't heard the pollution uh, <laughs> one come up. But a couple years ago, people talked about that more than they do now, interestingly. Yeah. Steve, anything to add on that? Uh, very little, really. I think that uh, Mark's right. I mean, I've not heard uh, any... Uh, any regular sort of criticism of China and, and Chinese people in relation to uh, pollution coming from China. I mean, we've known for decades that lots of it has been coming either through the air or down the Pearl River. Um, 
but as Mark said, many of those factories, probably most of those factories were Hong Kong owned. We merely exported the pollution. Um, uh, and uh, there's a realization that you know, we've got to work much more closely with China. Um, you know, after the after the return of sovereignty in '97, in mean, one of the um, the areas that was uh, ultimately successful, I think, in terms of cross border cooperation, was uh, was on pollution. I mean, it's one of the biggest problems, and I think it's been one of the biggest successes. Uh, but in Hong Kong, I mean, we still have. Um, uh, the, the majority of our pollution problems in Hong Kong are domestically generated. Um, our power stations, and we've got, we've had a, a consultation on essentially asking Hong Kong people, how much are you prepared to pay in higher electricity costs for reducing uh, the amount of pollution from power stations? And in, and in traditional Hong Kong fashion, people have answered essentially, we want maximum reduction at minimum cost. Um, uh, roadside pollution, uh, we've uh, gone a long way, we're going a long way, and we're not just subsidizing the, um, the uh, removal of the heavy polluting, heavy vehicles from Hong Kong's roads, but we're also making it mandatory. The one big area that still remains for us uh, as a major port are, are pollutions from international vessels in our harbor. Although that has actually changed too as a result of the Fair Winds Charter, and so they can't burn uh, the high sulfur fuel when they're uh, in Hong Kong waters anymore. So that's getting cleaned up as well. Mark, thank you so much.